This morning, I'm going to take a little bit of time and do something a little different um, in response to those things that happened yesterday. I don't think we can just act like they didn't happen and ignore them. Uh, They are brutal and awful and not all that uncommon, unfortunately. But what is our response to them? Do we just... As a church, do we just ignore it and move on as though it didn't happen? I mean, what, and what, what about when people ask you questions about it and about where is God in all of that? And I think those are things that we need to talk about. And I've said before that in my 40 years of preaching and ministry, I've seen all kinds of tragedy, and, and, and there's always the question, why? And the, the Scripture is often rather silent about the why, but it speaks an awful lot about the what now. And someday we'll know the why, but we certainly know what we should do now based on, on the Scripture. And we're going to look at several different stories sort of in a quick succession this morning to help us sort of get a, a, a grasp of how we can proceed with this and, and, and in some way how we can cope with it and how we can help others cope with it, especially based on the fact that we are followers of Jesus. And it begins with Romans chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans and the 12th chapter. And obviously, we're going to begin with verse 14. So in Romans chapter 12, verse 14, what happens when, when there's a calamity, when there's a, an earthquake or a tornado or a, a terrorist act or a tragedy or an act of violence? What is the response of those who, of us who love Christ and are in his church? Well, Paul makes it clear in chapter 12 of his letter to the Romans in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And then verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So this morning... I want us to, we're going to look at, again, it's a very different way of preaching this morning, but we're going to look at a few passages of Scripture. Then we're going to take some time, and we're going to pray this morning. So here Paul makes it clear that as followers of Christ, we are to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, but we also weep and mourn with those who are weeping. And you know and I know this morning that just in those two communities of Dayton and El Paso, there are many who are weeping this morning. There are many churches who are trying to grasp with how to deal with family and friends who have lost loved ones even this morning in that. There are many first responders who are trying to deal with what they saw. There are many people who were there just witnessing what they saw. And I think for us, when we gather together just a few hours after those events to pretend and act as though they don't have any impact, I think we're not being obedient to Christ. I think we are the gathered church. The risen Lord is here. We're to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn and share in their grieving. So I would like you to take a few minutes with me this morning And quietly, I want you to pray. I want all of us to pray quietly, silently to the Lord that there would be there would be a a comfort that would come to some of these families, these individuals, these first responders, maybe perhaps even brought by other Christians who are there in the community with them. But they would feel a, a tremendous sense of God's presence and peace and that we would not ignore them and their hurt. And not only them, but obviously folks all around us who are hurting here in our communities as well. But let's take a few minutes this morning, and I'll close this in prayer. But just quietly where you are, ask the Lord 
to comfort those who are hurting and mourning this morning. Father, this morning we come before you and our hearts are broken and we're grieving. We can't even begin to understand the grief that some loved ones and parents are feeling at this hour. Not only their grief, but their anger and their frustration. And Lord, there's so many things we don't know and we don't understand, but we do know that we are not to ignore people who are hurting. So Lord, we want this morning... to ask you in your grace and your peace to become so real in the lives of these people who are hurting so desperately to stay. And, and Lord, even our, our believers in Dayton and El Paso, the churches, the church members, the Sunday school teachers there, Father, give them extra grace as they know how to deal with and serve and care for these families who are hurting even in this morning. Father, we we take time from our lives, we take time from our worship service this morning to pray for them corporately. In Jesus' name, amen. Another passage of scripture is Isaiah chapter 6. So if you want to turn to the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, normally when we look at Isaiah chapter 6, we're talking about the holiness of God, and I think I've preached on that even, and that's a wonderful thing to talk about. But let's get a little bit of background. <laughs> it feels like the world is sort of coming apart at the seams when everything we trusted we no longer can trust, when it feels chaotic and, and violent and, and uncertain. That was the culture, that was the world that Isaiah was in in chapter 6. Listen to what one writer says about the year that King Uzziah died. Remember when Isaiah goes to the temple in chapter 6, well let's just look, chapter 6 verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord up on the throne, high and lifted up, and he talks about how he saw him in the temple. Isaiah had been going to the temple constantly. But in the year that King Uzziah died, he went to the temple and he saw something different. And what's special, what's unique about the year that King Uzziah died? Well, listen to what one writer said about that particular year in history. No one really knows for certain what year it was. Most folks speculate that it was somewhere around 740 BC. But we do know that Uzziah was a very successful king. He was famous all over the known world for his strength. He built up the infrastructure of a nation, improving its safety and comfort for its citizens. His army was large enough and well-equipped enough that it could win any battle. And most importantly, all the Old Testament historians agree that what he did was right and straight in the eyes of the Lord, and his reign lasted for 52 years. So for 52 years, the people of Israel knew that they were going to be protected, that there was stability and all of those things. But now Uzziah has died. And so in the year that Uzziah died, it would have been a year of incredible, unbelievable turmoil in the life of the people. Everyone would have been afraid. Will the new king be as successful as Uzziah? Will he be able to keep peace and prosperity and security? Will all the neighboring kingdoms who've been looking at us for all these years now exploit our weaknesses and take us over and take our children into slavery and kill us? 
Syria and Israel were advancing on Judah. Assyria was building its might as a superpower. And within a half a decade or so, and after King Uzziah died, God's people were indeed in the middle of a major war. I mean, when, Uzziah, when, when Isaiah goes to the temple in the year that Uzziah dies, he's going at a time of incredible uncertainty and fear and anxiety. And what does he see when he gets to the temple? He sees God positioned in a way he's never seen him before. So here's, here's the reality. Even though from the standpoint of our human standpoint, we look at this world and we see the chaos and we see the pain and we see the suffering and it's real and it's there, God is still in control. He is still on his throne. Now, I know the morning after these events, that's a little hard to process. You think, well, if he's there... Why doesn't he do something about it? Why doesn't he stop it? And again, dear saints, there's so much we just don't know and so much is just not answered. There's another story that's quite familiar where Jesus is carrying on a discussion with some people about some atrocities that have happened to some folks and whether it was fair for them or not. And Jesus said, well, what about this tower of Siloam that fell and killed a number of people? Were they, were they more innocent than you? In other words, Jesus is basically saying, as Charles Spurgeon said, these are, just, these, are, these are not punishments that happen to people. This is just life. This is just, we don't fully understand it or comprehend it. Jesus doesn't answer the question why the tower fell or why these particular people were killed. He just simply says, use that as an example to realize that your life is short and you better be ready and things are uncertain. And so in, in a very real way, All of these things teach us we live in an uncertain world. And frankly, living in 21st century North America, we feel like we live in a pretty certain world. You know what I'm saying? We we feel pretty safe and secure because basically in terms of all the people who've ever lived in all of history, in all of the nations, we probably are among the most safe and secure there's ever been. And so when something happens, like happened in El Paso and Dayton, it throws all that off. But the reality of it is, life is fragile and uncertain for all of us. And sometimes this sense of security we have is completely false in that sense. I mean, the idea here that Isaiah understood that as long as Uzziah was king, then then things would be somewhat stable. But Uzziah wasn't going to be king forever. But when he went into the temple, he realized that God was going to be king forever. And even though we can look around and we can say this is happening and that is happening and this is frightening and it is and this is terrifying and it is, we as believers know that this is not all there is that God is still on his throne, that none of this means he is incapable of working. This side of heaven, we don't understand how all of these things are working together. But we do understand, as I said, we're to mourn with those who mourn, we're to weep with those who weep, we're to work for the, the, the protection of people, we're to do all we can this side of heaven to make life and this, this, air, this world a safer place for our friends and our neighbors. But it'll never be perfectly safe until we get to heaven. And so mornings like this are times for us to do what Isaiah did. To realize Uzziah's gone. This is an unsafe world. And we have to return to the temple. And we have to see our God not as weak and ineffective. Not as one who can't handle crises. But as one who is high and lifted up. Who is 
all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing, all the time. That's how we see our God. Because that is indeed who our God really is. And he always will be. And nothing has changed. And whenever there's a crisis, whenever there's an earthquake or a tornado or a flood or, as I said, a terrorist attack or some kind of event, we often, we're immediately like those people in Israel, we're concerned about what the future is. And that, off, that makes tremendous sense, but gives us a great time to care for people who are hurting and be the love of Christ in their life, but also to refocus our lives and realize that all that we really know for sure is that God is in control and God is on his throne and none of that has changed. Not one bit, not at all, not ever, not now, not forever. And that's a wonderful thought. So again, with that, go with me to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to look real quickly at Luke chapter 13 as Jesus talks about this. So in Romans, we're told to weep with those who weep. Isaiah, when he, his life was in crisis, went to the temple and saw God in control. But here Jesus deals with some questions. In Luke chapter 13, verse 1, there were some present at that time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered and he said, do you think the Galileans were worse sinners than all of the others? Because the Galileans suffered this way? That's a very good question. They're asking Jesus, why did these particular Galileans, why were they treated this way and killed this way? Why them and not us? And Jesus is saying, what, you, you, you think perhaps they were guilty and you weren't? And is that not the question we ask? It could have been us at Walmart. It could have been us there. Why them and not us? And that's the very same question that they're asking Jesus. Jesus responds by saying, well, why would you even ask such a question? Do you think perhaps they were guilty and you weren't? So he tells them something else. He says, no, that's not the reason. I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Because then Jesus adds something to it. He says in verse 4, or those 18. It's interesting that they knew how many were killed in this tower. It was like the word had gotten around to Israel, and it was a story that people, and they were talking about, you just happened to be standing, literally, listen, in the wrong place at the wrong time, and this tower fell on you. Just happened to be in the wrong aisle at the wrong time, and this happened to you. I mean, even though we're 2,000 years later, they're asking Jesus the same question many of us would be thinking and asking today. And so Jesus said, or the 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed him. Do you think they were worse offenders than all who have lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, that sounds like, well, Jesus, that's pretty harsh. Why? But here's the reality. It's what I was trying to mold together a while ago with, with Uzziah and all the others. We live in a fallen, broken world. And until Jesus comes again, it is not a safe world. And what Jesus is saying is, since it's not a safe world, don't have a false sense of security, but be ready when something happens. Because here's the good news. You're thinking, this doesn't sound real good this morning, but here's the good news. There's nothing that a tornado 
or a flood or a hurricane or an earthquake or a terrorist attack or a violent attack or a car wreck or a disease. There's nothing that those things can take. Nothing that they can take that is eternal. Nothing. You can lose all your house in an earthquake, but you can't lose your soul. You can't lose your place in heaven. You can't lose the home that Jesus has prepared for you in his father's house. And you can lose a lot in this earth, but you will not lose what is eternally prepared for you. That can never be taken from you. Satan can, he can, he can, he can dig at us. He can, he can pull at us. He can hurt us, but he can ultimately not destroy us as children of God. You want real protection in this world? Confess your sin, repent of your sin, become a follower of Jesus because then no man can ever take that away from you. And you have eternal life forever and ever and ever. Amen. That's what these things teach us. That we have to look to God to be our source of strength and courage. And because we live in a very uncertain and difficult time as all humanity has. And it'll be that way until Jesus comes again. But here's the other good news. He is coming again. If you're like me, you've seen it all over. When will this stop? When will this stop? I got news for you. Are you ready? It's not going to stop until the eastern sky opens and Jesus comes again. We can, we can try to subdue it. We can make the world a better place, hopefully, but it's not going to go away. We're not going to remove evil until Jesus comes again, but we know he is coming again, and we know one day he will destroy it. And if you're a child of God, then you know one day there's coming a day when there's never going to be any more fear, never going to be any more tears, never going to be any more angst, never going to be any more violence. And that's why we say like the early Christians, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. Make it happen soon. And these kind of events also make us long for not this world, but the next and sometimes we as Christians in 21st century America, we're pretty comfortable in this world. We like it pretty well. And we need to be reminded that this is a fallen and broken world. And we need to be salt and light in this world. And we need to be loving people in this world and caring for people in this world and, and identifying with those who are hurting in this world and praying for those in this world who are suffering, but looking at the realizing that what we see in this world is not all that there is. That when Isaiah went into the temple in the year of King Uzziah's death, God was still on his throne. That just because bad things happen to people here, as Jesus talks about, don't try to figure out why them and not you, but realize we all are going to perish and you'd better be ready. Because if you're ready, then Satan can't do anything to you. Any child of God yesterday... Their life might have been taken, but they are not gone. They are eternally with the Lord. That can never be touched. And to wrap that up, we can look in the book of Revelation, a powerful passage of chapter 1, where John sees the risen Lord in all of his risen, resurrected glory. And in Revelation chapter 1, in this vision, John sees him. 
Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice of the one speaking to me, and I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. He's never seen Jesus in this power before. And in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. And then Jesus said, fear not. And this is what I want us to understand this morning. In the midst of all the fear and all the anxiety in this world, Jesus says, fear not. Why? Because he says, look at me. Fear not, John. You don't have to be afraid. Fear not. For I am the first and the last. Hey, listen, nothing comes before Jesus and nothing will be here after Jesus. He is God eternal. God has always been. God will always be. And nothing in this earth, nothing on this planet is going to change that. You don't have to be afraid, John. I have always been. I will always be. That hasn't changed. It didn't change last night, and nothing's going to change it today or tomorrow or for all eternity. And so when you and your children and others are feeling anxiety about this world we live in, you can bring comfort in knowing that God is the same yesterday, today, forever. He always has been. He always will be. And we don't need to live in fear because ultimately, if we have our faith and our trust in him, Nothing eternal can be taken from us. Cancer can't take it. A gun can't take it. An earthquake, a tornado, nothing can take it from us. And then he says this, I have the keys of death and Hades. Not Satan. I'm the one. I'm the one. I hold the keys of life. Dear saints, on days like this, we need to understand one more story. One more. In Mark's gospel, where Jesus goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and there he finds that Gadarene demoniac, right? And he's living among the tombs. Do you remember that story? And he hurts himself and he hurts, he scares others and he's running around day and night making awful noises and living among the tombs. And what what do the people there in, in that region of that country try to do? They try to bind him with chains and with ropes and with leather straps. And every time they try to bind him or hold him down or keep him from hurting himself or keep him from running around and terrifying other people, he rips apart the chains. Every time they tried to subdue him, they could not subdue him. All of their efforts failed. And then he meets Jesus, right? And what does Jesus do? Jesus is the one that casts out the demons in him. And the next thing we know, this man is clothed and in his right mind. Here's the reality. The answer to this kind of violence in our culture is really found here, inside the walls of this congregation. For you see, it is the gospel that can change a life. And I do think the church in North America has to look long and hard at ourselves and say, 
Why in a country that we had total freedom to share the gospel, why is there so much sin? Why is there so much hatred? Why is there so much violence when we have the only answer to that? And oftentimes we've been so distracted with our own comfort and our own need and making sure church was what we wanted it to be and even sometimes quarreling and fussing among ourselves that we've lost our witness to the world. And then when something evil like this happens, we go, where did that come from? And we have to look back to ourselves and say, where have we been? Have we been the gospel? Have we been salt and light? It's a time for us to mourn with those who mourn. It's a time for us to rejoice that God is on his throne and nothing can be taken from a Christian. Nothing eternal can be taken from us. Satan can't do that. He can't harm us. But thirdly, it's a time for us to take a long, hard look at ourselves and say, this is our country. We've had total freedom to plant churches, to share the gospel without any hindrance at all. Why in the world? Where have the churches been? Why are our cities so dangerous? When I went to Montreal to plant a church, Montreal is a city about the size of, I don't know, it's hard to say because there's so many municipalities around it, but it's several million people. Third largest city, I think, in Canada, second largest city in Canada. But the first year I was there in Montreal, there were 52 homicides in Montreal. Almost no, almost no evangelical churches whatsoever. In the city of Houston, Texas, where you, 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 you can't move from block to block without stepping on an evangelical church, over 300 homicides. You tell me what's, what that picture means. Where, where's the transformation of our cities because the gospel is there? We all like church for us, but where's the transformation of the city because the gospel is there? I think if the gospel is truly here, then it's going to transform what's around it. That's what happened in the first century. But here, it's like in North America, we can have these little isolated places where we get these little evangelical bubbles and we come and just take care of ourselves and we have no impact on the world at all. And I'm not sure, other than just our desire for comfort and, and be taken care of and a sense of lack of urgency to share the good news, we look around and we say, what's happened to our country? And we have to first have to look at us and repent. Say, what's happened to us? Why, why, why in, under our watch has it come to this? Because Jesus does talk about the fact when he talks about the tower that fell and those whose blood was mingled with the sacrifices by Herod. He says, this is a chance for you to repent. And so I think this morning, as we prayed for the first responders and we prayed for those who are dealing with those dear ones who are wounded and killed, their families today, I think we need to pray for ourselves and say, the gospel is serious work. Being a follower of Jesus and serving in a church and giving to a church and the work of the church, it's not just a club. It's not just another thing in our life. It is the only hope the world has. It is the hope for violence. It is the hope for hatred. 
It is the hope for all of those things because a person who's been truly converted will not possess those things. And we can try to bind up these guys and these people. We can try to, we can try to hold, we can try everything we can try, but it's not going to work just like it didn't work with the Gadarene demoniac. The only thing that really works, really transforms lives is the gospel. And that's what we have. And we are going to be held accountable with how we have shared it. So let's pray together. Father, this morning as we think about this, Lord, make us mindful even at this hour that what we do here in church is important and it matters. And forgive us, Lord, when we've made it something far less than it really is. It is a matter, Father, of spiritual warfare. And, and Lord, our culture, our cities depend upon us to share the good news, to transform hearts and lives, to make this world a safer place. And, a, and Lord, forgive us when our cities seem to have no transformation at all and churches populate every corner of them forgive us when we never take pause and ask why that is forgive us father for not boldly sharing the gospel at great cost to our own independence and joy and personal gain so this morning as we prayed for those who are suffering we pray for ourselves that we would redouble our efforts and realize how important it is to share the good news and share the gospel. And and then, Father, finally, we thank you this morning that we know that you're on your throne and you're in control and nothing can be taken from us if we are a child of yours that is eternal. We'll never lose it. And finally, Father, we thank you that one day this is all going to end. One day you will come and make it all right once again. What a great and wonderful confidence that is that we can share with our children and our grandchildren. It's not going to be this way forever. There's one coming who will ultimately correct it. These things we ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.